going to read this morning from Revelations 2, verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pernum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold you to the teaching of, ba of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food and sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Jeff, for leading us in prayer and reading. Um, all right, this morning we are uh, going to pick up on our, uh, this ongoing sort of New Year's uh, series on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, in chapters two and three. Um, and in one sense, it's a very short series, and it's that it's only seven sermons, there's only seven letters. Um, in another sense, it's a very long series in that we only preach one of them a year, and so it's a seven year long series um, on the first Sunday of every new year, and uh, New Year's already seems like a long time ago because it was a week ago, but um, this is the first Sunday of the new year, and so we, uh, we take this opportunity to evaluate ourselves as a church against these letters uh, because Christ prepared these letters uh, as an encouragement and an admonition and a correction to the church in the end times. Uh, and so they are very much uh, for us today as they were for uh, the first century church in Asia Minor. Um, and so it's a very good idea for us to uh, take these words seriously, to evaluate ourselves against them, and to see um, which of these warnings uh, rings true for us and how we can avail ourselves uh, of the corrections and the encouragements that are offered here um, as we head into a new year as a church together as well. Um, and the thing that always strikes me uh, when I read through these letters is how little has changed in 2,000 years. Um, the main theme of the letter to the church at Pergamum is on the tremendous pressure that they feel to compromise their worship and witness in order to appease the spirit of the age. And of course, that pressure is very much alive and well today. Um, however, we're also going to see that there's great encouragement for believers in the midst of that struggle to resist pressure. Um, and we'll see how Jesus shared some precious truths with the church of Pergamum um, in order to help them to stand firm in their faith in a pagan age. Um, and we'll see how we can benefit from that as well. All right. Um, 
First, we need to establish a little bit of background. It's always hard just sort of dipping into the book of Revelation without a proper introduction because it is a weird book. Um, it has a lot of in intimidating and strange imagery, right? There are dragons and mysterious warlords and strange beasts made up of parts of different animals and people. And um, there are scrolls and seals and lambs and lampstands and all these other things. And it can be a little bit confusing to, to open it up and say, what does this mean? Um, but it's important to understand that the book of Revelation ultimately is seeking to convey spiritual realities, uh, like spiritual warfare, the splendor of God's throne room, all these kinds of things. Things that are very difficult to communicate in simple human language. We don't have really accurate analogs for them. Um, and so Jesus himself comes to the Apostle John as he's exiled on the island of Patmos uh, by the Emperor Domitian uh, for spreading the gospel. Um, and Jesus commissions him with communicating the content of a message that really could only be communicated to him through a series of dreams and visions. Um, and so John is piling up descriptive language and, and imagery hoping to convey uh, the wonder and the magnitude of what uh, he has seen as accurately as he possibly can, given the limitations of our human language. Um, but Jesus is pulling back the curtains on the spiritual realm in order to encourage believers that although at times it feels like he is losing, ultimately Jesus has won. And the spoils of his victory await his people on the other side. And so, uh, all the strange imagery in the book of Revelation serves this pastoral purpose, right? Uh, it is ultimately to encourage the church, uh, specifically in, in its first context in Asia Minor at the close of the first century, but also universally in today, um, to stand firm in our faith because the victory has been won though it may not seem like it at times, okay? So it is guaranteed, persevere. Do not be discouraged by the rejection of your culture or be seduced by the shiny things of the world. Rather, hold fast to the promise of eternity and glory with him, okay? So that is, that's the overarching message. Um, okay, but specifically in this message to the city at Pergamon, there's seven different churches, there's seven different contexts with seven different needs, uh, pastoral needs to be addressed. And so we'll get specific about what Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamum. And in order to do that, we need to paint a little bit of a picture of life in the city of Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was a very important city in the first century world. Um, it had been the capital city of the Pergamon kingdom, uh, which was one of the four kingdoms of the Greek empire after Alexander the Great died. Um, and the kingdom of Pergamon itself was politically important because it controlled what we today know as Western Turkey. And if you can picture that on a map, uh, it's a landmass that connects the Black Sea in the north, the Aegean Sea in the west, and the Mediterranean Sea in the south. And so it was a connection point for all of the sea trade routes in that area of the world. Um, but it also connected the land routes, right? It connected Rome and Europe to the Middle East and to North Africa um, as a land bridge as well. 
And so it was an incredibly important place in the world. It had a very high status, especially in the age of the emperors, or empires, rather. And the city of Pergamon, Pergamum, rather, was the beating heart of it at this time. Um, so this also meant that it was a very cosmopolitan and culturally sophisticated city. Right? It was home to one of the most extensive libraries in the known world at that time. Um, apparently, it housed over 200,000 unique scrolls, which is incredibly impressive when you consider that every one of them would have had to have been handwritten. Um, it's not like books that just get cranked out these days. Um, so this is a truly mind-blowing library that they had. And as a Greek city, uh, even as it was turned over to the Roman Empire, the people there prized the knowledge and philosophical skill very, very highly. Um, and so Pergamon was a very worldly city, but it was also a very religious city. Um, and it's important for us to understand just uh, how intertwined religion and culture were in the late first century. Um, Pergamum, as a, as a site, is one of the most well-excavated and preserved uh, archaeological sites uh, in that region of the world. Um, and some of that is just due to the fact that it's built on a massive hilltop and it's away from the sea. It's about 26 miles inland. Um, but if you go there today, you can visit this, the massive Acropolis, and it's, um, it's just dotted with... Um, ruins of ancient temples and sanctuaries. Um, in fact, uh, in Pergamum is located the largest altar in the world, an altar to Zeus, uh, the foundations of which are still there. Um, the, the superstructure had been taken to Berlin and reconstructed in a museum, and you can see it there sometime maybe if you like. But it's this massive altar to Zeus, who is the, the king of the gods in the Greek pantheon. Um, and this was a big part of life in Pergamum. Um, there's also a uh, temple to, or the sanctuary of Hera, who is the queen of gods in the Greek pantheon. There's a 10,000-seat outdoor amphitheater, um, which is the steepest one in, in existence uh, that you can go and visit there. And right next to it are the ruins of the Temple of Dionysius, who is the god of wine and revelry. Right? There's a temple to Athena, the goddess of wisdom. There was a temple to Demeter, the goddess of agriculture and harvest. And it was home to one of the greatest houses of healing in the ancient world as well, which was an ancient te temple hospital of Asclepios, um, in which was a healing cult that was um, characterized by the use of snakes. And if you look at a medical uh, bracelet today, right, it has the symbol of the staff with snakes wrapped around it. That's, that's a hangover from Greek culture, from, from the cult of Asclepios. Um, and that was just the Greek influence. Then when Rome took over, they built the Temple of Trajan on the top of the Acropolis as well, so, which was a part of the cult of imperial worship, where you would go to worship the emperor. Um, and that was the center of civic life in the Roman world. And there were some others, and, and just, I'll just mention one. There was a, a, a Greco-Egyptian deity. There was a temple to Serapis, which was amalgam of, an amalgam of Osiris and Apis, uh, the cults there. And I mentioned that one because we're going to talk about Antipas later, and tradition holds that Antipas was martyred there at the temple of Serapis. Um, all right, all of this is to say that Pergamum was a very, very, very religious place. It was inescapable. All the different kinds of paganism were being practiced here. 
Um, and so it was a very unlikely place for a, a monotheistic religion to thrive. Um, it would have been a very, very difficult city to be a Christian in. Um, religious ceremony was the social life of the city, right? To even go to the doctor, uh, you would go to the temple of Asclepios, right? And you would, uh, your, your health care was pagan ritual. They, they, they had this vault, this 70-meter uh, vault beneath the courtyard where people would be put into a trance and they would release snakes to crawl all over your body. You were supposed to have visions, and then you would report the visions to the priest, and the priest would interpret them, and then they would know how to diagnose you and treat you. Um, and this was all done in the honor of, of the god Asclepios. Um, so this is just a normal day of going to the doctor for people in Pergamum. Um, and uh, Demeter's temple would have been the place to go for good food. People would go, there, there's this food slow cooking all day in her honor there and you would go and you would get the meat from the temple um, and you would eat it with your friends or you would go to a show down at the amphitheater and ever afterwards everyone would head over to the temple of Dionysus for drinks and an orgy afterwards and this was just normal life um, if you wanted to keep up with polite society in the cocktail party discussions you would have to stay up on the latest uh, knowledge of philosophy and trends um, you'd have to hang out with the crowd at Athena's sanctuary, right? So in short, if you didn't want to be excluded from, everyday, uh, from the everyday pulse of society in Pergamum, um, you had to be involved, at least to some degree, in the pagan rituals of the day, all day, every day, right? And this was also the age of trade guilds in the Roman, Roman Empire. Um, which are kind of like unions, right? And you had to be a member of the local guild in order to practice your specific trade. Um, but the problem is that these trade guilds were so tied to pagan ritual that the initiation rites and the ceremonies and the feasts um, that you were required to attend with your guilds, you know, each of these were filled with religious ritual and the worship of gods and the emperor. Um, it was to the point where if you were to consciously abstain from all things pagan, you would have a very, very difficult time participating in civic life. Um, at a minimum, you would stand out like a sore thumb, right? And this was the pressure that the Christians uh, were, were under here, that, that John is addressing, or that Jesus is addressing through John, right? Standing on their convictions led to their exclusion from polite and respectable society and the ostracization of their peers. And so Jesus writes uh, to encourage them, right? He writes through John to encourage and strengthen them to remain firm in their exclusive worship of him despite this immense cultural pressure to compromise and to conform. And he begins like this. Uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Okay, so what does it mean that Jesus addresses or introduces himself as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword? Um, to understand this, first we, we need to sort of wind up, back up a little bit, where uh, Jesus introduces, or well, reveals himself to John in his vision, right? John hears this voice talking, and in chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white as wool, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Okay, so Jesus uh, is introduced here, first with a reference to Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, of uh, the one whose dominion would be forever, right? Um, and then two very common images. One is the image of a priest who is uh, tending the temple vessels and the lampstands here, right? Um, the, the priest would have um, spent their time in the temple making sure that everything uh, was up to snuff, I guess. You know, they would go around and they would trim the wicks and fill the oil in the lamps and stuff. So here, this image of Jesus tending the lampstands, and the lampstands represent the churches, Right? So he's going among them. He's, he's, he's tending to them. He's making sure that they're burning bright. Right? That's one of the roles that he plays for the church here. And the other is he's the one with the double-edged sword, which is always an image of him as judge. His ability to discern the hearts of man and to uh, convict very accurately right? and diagnose. And um, that image actually also calls to mind uh, Hebrews 4, which likely would have been written about 30 years earlier, and so it's very possible that the, the Christians here, it's very likely the Christians here were familiar. Um, Hebrews 4, uh, where we read famously that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, right? It, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Again, Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the one who has this double-edged sword, who discerns the hearts and intentions of man. He is the one to whom we must give an account. And so it is he who's writing to the Pergamon Christians to evaluate them, and there's no fooling him. There's no escaping his diagnosis, as, as scathing as it might be. So, so things are about to get real. Okay? And they begin in verse 13. Jesus starts there. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Um, if we kept reading in Hebrews 4, the very next part, so first we see God as judge who discerns the heart, but then we see him as compassionate high priest the one who is able to empathize with our weaknesses in the face of temptation because he himself took on human flesh and experienced what it means and what it feels like to be weak. However, he was without sin. But he's able to empathize with us in our weakness. Okay, so um, he begins by saying, look, I, I know your situation. I can empathize, right? I know that it is hard to hold fast to your faith in this current cultural context that you find yourself in, right? He doesn't immediately come down on them. He doesn't beat them over the head for uh, feeling tempted to compromise. First, he validates their desire to be accepted and their fear of rejection, right? And the fact that it is hard. The impulse to want to belong is not wrong in and of itself, right? We were created to belong. We were created to bask in the acceptance and the love and the delight of our creator. 
So these are innate desires, but sin twists them, right? And so the question then becomes, whose acceptance and rejection matter most to us, right? Is it the acceptance or rejection of our culture that we desire above all else? Or is it the acceptance of our eternal Lord and King, Jesus, that matters most to us? This is the question that we must wrestle with. And um, we really need to search our hearts here because we are so easily self-deceived on this point. And so Jesus begins, um, he begins by commending them for not renouncing his name in the face of social pressure. He says that they live in the, in the place where Satan's throne is, right? Or where Satan lives himself. And there's a number of different interpretations of this. Some people think that this is referring to uh, the altar of Zeus that's there. Some people think it's referring to the temple of Trajan and, and the emperor worship. Other people think it's merely a spiritual reference. Um, I don't see any reason why it can't be all of the above um, because the cumulative effect of all of it is that they lived in a hotbed of temptation to compromise their exclusive worship of Jesus, which is Satan's game, right? Satan is trying desperately to have dominion in this place, but Jesus is Lord, and so he comes to remind his people uh, lords do not share their allegiances, right? And so the Pergamum Christians are clinging to that truth. They haven't rejected the name of Christ, even though Christianity is not well respected in this place at this time. All right, 13b, he continues, you did not re renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Um, I mentioned Antipas earlier. Um, this is the only mention that we have of him in the Bible, but there is, um, there is a church tradition in, in the Eastern Orthodox Church that, about St. Antipas. He is um, believed to have been the bishop at Pergamum, installed there by John himself. Um, and tradition holds that he cast out demons that were being used in worship at the Temple Serapis, and this very much upset the priests there. And so... They martyred him. They put him to death in a bronze bowl, which was a ritual torture device in the Greek Empire. It was a full-size uh, bronze cast of a bowl. It was hollow inside the door, and they put a person in there, and they would light a fire under it, and they would basically slowly roast to death with incense. Um, and so uh, the tradition holds that this is how Antipas was martyred in Pergamum. And Jesus is saying... Um, you know, he's commending the local Christians for holding on to the name of Christ even after this event, even after seeing this, um, which would have been, a, I think, a bit of a horrifying thing to witness. Uh, you're the bishop, the leader of the church in Pergamum, he gets roasted alive in a bronze bowl um, for staying true to the gospel. Um, anyway, so Jesus is commending the local Christians for holding fast to his name even after that event. Um, now, this is not to minimize it in any way, but it, there doesn't seem to be evidence that uh, the physical persecution like that was very common at the time. The bigger issue um, was that this event probably would have further uh, marginalized the reputation of Christians in that city as being petty troublemakers, right? They were seen as a nuisance. 
And that is where the real pressure lies, right? In a pluralistic society, much like our own, you are free to believe whatever you want. Your beliefs might be more or less respected by the mainstream of culture, but so long as you tolerate everyone else's beliefs, you're free to hold your own. Right? Doesn't that sound familiar to us? Um, For a long time in our culture, there has been almost no real cost to calling yourself a Christian publicly. Right? So long as you kept your mouth shut about other people's beliefs um, and practices, right? The temptation for a Christian in a society like that, or like this, rather, um, is to simply blend in with the scenery, right? Just try not to draw any negative or unnecessary attention to yourself, right? Camouflage yourself as best as you can against the backdrop of the mainstream culture. That's how you get out of having to actually do anything hard. And of course, our sinful human nature is bent towards this, right? Just don't be too radical about your beliefs, right? Don't be too weird. Don't be a troublemaker. Be a good member of society. Toe the line. Don't make trouble or problems for other people, right? But that, unfortunately, does not align with the mission of the church, right? Um, Yes, we are to maintain and remain at peace with our neighbors so long as it's within our power to do so without losing the distinct countercultural flavor of Christ. We are his body, after all. You cannot truly serve Jesus as Lord without standing out in a culture that denies his lordship. It's impossible. Right? And our world is, is, is fast moving beyond the politics of mere toleration of others' beliefs. Right? Uh, we're, that is starting to give way to a much more radical position, which is that you can have your own beliefs so long as you also affirm the cultural mainstream beliefs are good and right as well. Right? You can make no moral evaluation of culture's values. Rather, you must affirm them by performing token acts of compromise. Just little token acts of compromise. That's all we ask, right? And uh, these are myriad in our culture. You're going to face this in the workplace. You're going to face this in your relationships with your neighbors and your friends and your family members. You're going to face this with uh, the people that you enjoy recreation with in the locker room or at the gym. Uh, You're going to be faced with this all the time in a culture like ours. And in Pergamum, In their context, what this meant was uh, they would have to go along with certain cultural practices that were antithetical to the gospel as well. For them, you know, when their work buddies are heading up to the temple at the end of the day for a feast uh, in the honor of Zeus or the emperor, right, the temptation would be just go along, keep your head down, right? Who cares if the priest dedicates the meal as a sacrifice to false gods? Uh, I don't actually believe in Zeus, so it doesn't really matter. I'm I'm not worshiping. Worshiping is a matter of the heart, right? It's this is just, I'm just going through the motions for the sake of getting along with everybody, right? Um, they probably didn't believe it anyway. Most of them were culturally religious people. They didn't actually really believe in Zeus. They just did these things, right? They were cultural practices. So what's the matter? What's the harm? You know, this, is, this is, would have been sort of the thing that they were faced with, right? But then after dinner, out come the temple prostitutes, right? And it's time for everyone to do their part in appeasing the gods. Where do you draw the line? This was the issue in Pergamum, 
Um, and this is what Jesus calls them out for, right? In verse 14 and 15, uh, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. See, all throughout the Bible, pagan idol worship tended to involve the elements of food and sex. Right? They, it always centered around the satisfaction of carnal desires. And this is what attracted people to it in the first place. Um, and here, uh, Jesus calls out what he calls the teaching of Balaam. Um, we read about Balaam in the book of Numbers. Balaam was a, a pagan priest of some kind. Um, and when Israel is encamped on the plains of Moabite before entering the, or the plains of Moab before entering the promised land, um, the king of the Moabites, Balak, sees them, and he's concerned that they're going to they're going to consume all their resources and they're going to wipe out their their land and their culture. They're going to take over everything, and so he goes and finds Balaam and pays him money, and he says, "You need to come and curse these people." You need to ruin them. You need to undermine them and take, so that they can't defeat us. And, of course, the story goes that, that God would not allow Balaam to curse his people. Um, and he first stops him on his way there. There's, a, there's an angel with a flaming sword blocking the way, and it's his donkey who can see it and will go no further. And Balaam just keeps beating the donkey and telling him he needs to go, 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 go. And finally the donkey turns and rebukes him because he was so foolish. Um, and then he ends up going anyway, but he's not allowed to curse Israel. So God makes him bless Israel. And I think six or seven times he tries to curse Israel in the end, just keeps blessing them over and over and over again. So eventually that doesn't work. And Balak wants to get his money's worth from Balaam. And so I guess they have a private conversation. We only get reference to it later, where Balaam apparently had told Balak, look, if you want to undermine these people, you've got to get between them and their God. That's the way. And so um, we read in Numbers 31 that they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Right? And nothing has changed in the pagan world in 1,500 years and when we arrive in the, in the church of Pergamum. Right? The people of Pergamum there believed that by participating in feasts and orgies, they could appease the gods who controlled the weather and their health and their food production and their military safety and uh, who would provide the wisdom and insight necessary for life, right? And the teachings of Balaam in the church were, hey, we can do all that and we can serve the one true God. We can do both, right? That was the lie. That was the teaching of Balaam that they were, uh, that they were tolerating in the church there. And, uh, he, and he goes on, he says, uh, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So apparently there is um, uh, maybe a modernized, updated version of this in the church um, that, is, is being, uh, that would have been being taught by someone named Nicholas and his followers would be the Nicolaitans, these people who hold to this idea that you can serve both God and your culture, right? And maybe this was a very sophisticated version of um, the very popular um, Gnosticism in the Greek world, right? Which taught that uh, the physical body, you know, it was temporal and it was contaminated and it's, 
really, it's not important. It's, it's the fact that you're, it's the eternal spiritual being that matters, right? So as long as, you're, as long as you're right with God, right? The outworkings of disbelief are what you do with your body really doesn't matter as long as you're spiritually right with God, right? And, and you can obviously uh, imagine the, the kinds of compromise that that leads to very quickly, right? Um, and so that seems to be what's going on. There's people who are teaching this in the church at Pergamum, and the people aren't that opposed to it, right? Um, but remember who's talking. It's Jesus. It's the one who holds the double-edged sword, who can discern the true motives of the heart, right? Because you can imagine, I, I mean, I hear this kind of thing nowadays where people talk about how, well, in order to really engage the culture with the gospel, first we have to make these just small little compromises so as not to offend them. Right? We need to build this bridge. We need, to, we need them to want to come to church. And in order to do that, we need to make small compromises on what the gospel teaches. But it's so that we can win them over to Christ, right? Well, no. Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he says, no, no, no. That is not how this works. I see right through this. You are trying to have your cake and eat it too. You are simply trying to avoid the discomfort of self-denial and being at odds with your culture. There is no room for compromise. That is what Jesus has come to say to this church, right? He says, I don't care how you justify it to yourself. You cannot serve both the one true God and the idols of this world. Uh, we saw this in our teaching in the Sermon on the Mount recently, right? In Matthew 6, uh, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other, right? Jesus says it is impossible. No, you need to stop trying to justify this and repent, Right? Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against him with the sword of my mouth. And again, sword of my mouth, right? Calls to mind his role as judge. Jesus is love and mercy and compassion for those who repent. Right? We, but for those who don't, we cannot forget that he is the great judge who holds the sword. And here he talks about the sword of his mouth, right? His pronouncements, the pronouncements of his mouth are life or death to both the world and the church, right? He will cut away the unfaithful members of his church. And so this is not an idle threat. It is a gracious warning to his people. He's saying, wake up. Get serious. Start thinking about how you're engaging with your culture and where you are being tempted to compromise. He will not share his throne. He does not recognize the half-hearted worship of those who do not recognize his exclusive lordship. Right? This is what he tells his disciples in Matthew 10. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, or disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And he goes on and he says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Right? These are hard words, right? The call to discipleship is a radical call. It is not an easy call. It is not a comfortable call. It's not something that is supposed to uh, be boring or unexciting. Uh, or not scary, <laughs> right? Um, the reality is that if your faith does not leave you feeling at odds with the values of this world, 
you're probably not following Jesus. And this is a matter of life and death, right? Jesus, the judge, comes to warn. Friends, we must repent of our cowardice and of our attempts to camouflage ourselves in the culture because Jesus is saying it amounts to nothing less than a denial of Christ. That is serious, very serious. It's a hard word, and it's one that we all need to hear. All right, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? Do we have ears? Are we awake? Are we listening? Right? The Spirit is calling us to repentance and to renewed commitment to King Jesus. Can we hear him? Are we listening? He goes on, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. All right, what is hidden manna? Well, first, what is manna? Uh, Manna itself is the heavenly food that God fed his people with during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? He, He sustained them and provided for them for 40 years, teaching them over the course of that time to depend solely and wholly on him for all of their daily needs. It took a long time for them to learn that lesson. Um, And Jesus is saying, look, just as I fed my people physically in their wilderness wandering, so I will feed my church spiritually in the spiritual wasteland that you find yourself in today. He says, I will provide, protect, and sustain you, right? Um, In just a little while, Brother Steve is going to lead us in the sacrament, in communion, right? Which is a, a place where we are fed spiritually by Christ. He gives himself to us to strengthen and to nourish our faith, to bolster us, to stand firm in the face of the temptations and the pressure to compromise on our worship of him, his exclusive lordship, right? It's a, it's a gift to the church. He feeds us with hidden manna. It is a spiritual nourishment. Listen, my, uh, in my own power, I am a coward, right? And my faith is weak. But... I am not alone, and you are not alone. Christ is in us. Christ is with us, and we are in him. We are with him, right? And Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He is your strength. He is your guarantee. Take heart. He will give you what you need to stand firm in the face of life's hardest trials. Okay, so he will, he will give us what we need in the here and now, but he also gives us a future promise to cling to. He gives us hope, something to fix our eyes on, right? Um, the second part of verse 17, he says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. All right, now this imagery, there's a number of possible things it refers to, but most likely it seems that it's a reference to, uh, in the Greek games, Uh, when an athlete would win their contest, they would be presented with a white stone with their name inscribed on it. 
And the games, obviously, they lasted a long time. And uh, you would hold on to this, uh, this stone with your name written on it so that when the games ended and they culminated in this great feast where the emperor would be present to honor all the athletes who had uh, been victorious, this stone with your name on it was your invitation. It was your guarantee that you would get into this feast. You would get to be in the presence of the emperor. It was the ultimate winner's circle. It was, it was the ultimate honor for, the, for the, a normal person there, right? Um, and so Jesus is using this imagery, and he's saying, look, for the one who is victorious, uh, I will give them a white stone with a new name written on it, right? With a, a name that is known only to the one who receives it. Remember, um, remember how Jesus begins this address, right? He says, I know where you live, right? I know your situation. I know how hard it is. I know how strong the pressure is. I know what you long for. He says, you, you want to be insiders. You want to be, be belong. You want to be accepted, right? You want to be... Uh, you want to be validated, right? And Jesus says, look, you, you are being tempted to throw away eternity for a temporal earthly reward. Sure, it's attractive, but it is not going to satisfy ultimately. It's not going to deliver the way you think it will. Right? You fear being rejected by this culture, but remember, this culture rejected me first. And I have overcome it, and you are identified with me. And so we come back to the idea of a new name, right? And this is all over Revelation. Um, and it's drawing, again on, uh, it's drawing again on imagery from the Old Testament prophets. Um, and it refers to being identified with Christ, okay? Um, in Revelation 3, the next chapter, we see in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus says this. He says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. And then in chapter 14, we see this image. Um, John says, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to give you this, this invitation, but this invitation is going to have my name on it because you are identified with me. He says, if you do not deny me, I will not deny you. In fact, you will receive a place of honor at the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb because you are personally identified with the king of the universe. Empires rise and emperors come and go, right? But the kingdom of God is eternal. And the lordship of Jesus is forever. Who cares if you get honored by some earthly emperor? He's going to die and go away, and no one's going to remember who he was anyway. Right? But you, the ultimate honor is that you will receive the favor of the king of heaven, and it will be yours for all eternity. What more could you possibly want? How, how is that not worth more than all of the shiny things that this world has to offer? Jesus says, look, man, look to this. Fix your eyes on this, and I will sustain you. I will give you the faith you need. I will give you the strength you need. I will nourish you, and I will carry you through to the end, and you will receive it. This is guaranteed, as sure as that white stone in your hand. All right. My friends, uh, as we look ahead into this new year, 
and finalize our plans and our resolutions, if you haven't already done so. Resolve to live boldly for Christ in a Christless culture. Resolve to count the cost of being identified with him when you are called on to do so and reap the precious rewards of picking up your cross and following him whose acceptance and love you were created to know and to bask in. Because his words are sure and he will certainly give you this reward. All right, amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and precious Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you uh, for the fact that you have set us free, Lord, from the snares of the devil in this world. Lord, that we are no longer slaves to our sin and to our weakness and to our uh, temptation, Lord, to, to compromise to give it all away uh, for temporal pleasures and fading rewards, Lord. We thank and praise you for the eternal weight of glory that you are storing up for us in heaven with Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. Father, feed and nourish and strengthen us. Give us the faith to persevere. Give us the, the resolve to follow Jesus with everything we have, Lord, to deny ourselves and our inclinations to want to fade into the background, Lord, but to stand boldly on the name of Christ as you've called us to do, Lord. We know you have promised to give us everything we stand in need of if we will but put our faith in you and trust you for it. And so, Lord, we, we entrust ourselves to you. Lord, give us more faith. Give us more grace. And we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.